been amazing. We've been hovering over moose and rain there and roll there and next to birds and found our resident lion pride and 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 a fantastic addition of seven little sort of two three month old cubs hidden in the grass. So Kanha Tiger Reserve in the state of Madhya Pradesh has had no records of wild elephants in the area, but last month two tuskers. Uh, have moved into the protect, protected area. It took seven grown adults to lift this bear. A mother came in with 20 little babies. They were just the cutest things, you know. Hi, and welcome to the Wildlife and Wilderness Travel and Safaris Show, the world's first and only podcast on wildlife safaris worldwide and sustainable tourism. This show is for everyone interested in ecotourism, travel in the natural world and adventures to our planet's wild places. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Banner, biologist and director of the travel company Wildlife and Wilderness, providing high quality holiday experiences to thousands of clients for almost 25 years. Stop and think for a moment, just what is happening right now out there in those wild places you would love to visit? For our second monthly news, I'm delighted to again host some of the owners of small camps and lodges, just a few of the many that we work with to provide you unique experiences. As I've said before, our tailor-made holidays are always guided by what interests you. If you're planning your future travels, do check out our website at wildlifewilderness.com or contact us by email to podcasts at wildlifewilderness.com. Let's get started and introduce for the first time Fredrik in Swedish Lapland. Hello, uh, I'm Fredrik. I run the Aurora Safari Camp and I'm sitting here at Latitude North 66 in uh, Arctic Sweden. So quite, uh, quite a bit from, from uh, Britain and England. And the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, and the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge area here. And and uh, I started Aurora Safari Camp uh, a few years back in 2013 with with African connections. You could say I have a background in, and my partner as well in in Kenya since uh, 90s. And we realized there's no glamp site in uh, proper glamp site made for proper Arctic winter climate in the Arctic. So so I I started that in 2013. So you've got a small camp. How many glamping tents do you have then? Uh, yeah, it's actually only four rooms and we don't plan to expand. We actually had five rooms from the start, but four was more convenient. We, we keep it to small groups, family groups, groups of friends, very small corporate groups. And we really get people out in, in the wild, uh, in, the, in the forests here and on the frozen waters and also in summer, of course. Basically, now we're going towards being open almost all year at least all the times when you can access the camp yeah now we can't we are in that in between season now uh so that's interesting uh yeah the reason is that the ice yeah the ice cap on the lake the snows are now disappearing and i guess the ice is melting as well yeah uh the ice actually now the water level in the river system is rising really fast it, it uh, raised uh, half a meter since yesterday evening wow and the ice is then lifting up and the ice is not secure anyway to, to go on, on with any vehicles or snowmobiles or snowshoes or skis or anything. And we can't have the boat in either. So and the camp is a few kilometers away. So so uh, we let it rest for a while and then I'll take the boat there maybe next week and, and uh, we'll go there cutting wood <laughs> and waiting <laughs> for more guests to come <laughs> and knock on wood. So I've, I, I'm sure the uh, idea of camping out in the middle of winter in northern Sweden sends shivers through most people. Can you explain how the camp is 
kept cozy and warm and ah, exactly. comfortable for clients. It's interesting that you you say that because to to feel cold, it's it's many times a mental uh, aspect of things. Uh, most most of our guests are very very fine down to minus twenty five, minus thirty, uh, and then the mental aspects kicks in from maybe even from even minus fifteen Celsius. No, we have it's warm accommodation. You have to remember that. Uh, so it's nice heaters in the Lavu tents, Sami tents, uh, spacious, uh, nicely furnished with proper beds, and we have a nice dining, a larger tent that is also very cozy and warm. And uh, we keep the tents warm. And our record with guests is minus forty-one uh, Celsius. <laughs> yeah. Out outside the tent. <laughs> outside the tent. Yeah. Okay, at the edge, it's it's getting colder in the in the tent inside, but but uh, the core of the tent is warm, and we have very nice duvets and sleeping bags, and and uh, you just have uh, two pieces of fabric between you and the surroundings where you sometimes actually can hear moose or reindeers or roedeers pass by uh, while you're in the tent. So that's quite cool, actually. That's very nice. Yeah. Uh, describe the setting a little bit. You said it's a few kilometers away. I... Yeah, uh, I'll describe the surroundings. We are. Uh, if you you click up a map of northern Sweden, you you usually arrive here to Luleå, uh, which is uh, the little regional capital up here at latitude 66. Uh, and we pick you up at the airport and we drive one hour northwest into the forests to Rhone River Valley, where you we get you kitted up with suits and boots and everything. Now we're talking winter. Yeah. Uh, and and then we we, uh, we drive with snowmobiles out to the camp uh, that is roughly. 15 minutes away maximum and we stop on the way and have a briefing about things and for many many guests have not been on a frozen lake of course that's natural it's it's actually we living here in a very non-normative environment for a global citizen so so yeah, it's an interesting ride just to get out there and, and then then you are embedded in our glamping comfort when you arrive <laughs> yeah with warm, warm drinks and good meals and and the wilderness just just there yeah just the yeah. silence of winter is quite special out there yeah and when you have uh, uh, snow uh, everywhere uh, and the ice cap on the lake that that uh, makes all noise gets very damp you, you kind of uh, softened Soften, yeah, that's how you soft, soften, yeah. So um, you and in if it's no wind, which is usually it's not in winter, you can hear uh, a branch crack, you know, from a kilometer away. Yeah. So so and that's quite um, an experience actually. The the maybe the silence might might be the uh, the solitude might be sometimes even stronger than northern lights and wildlife. Yeah, for yeah. many. And you mentioned the northern lights there. Obviously, you sing those regularly as well. What sort of winter activities do you carry out, and also summer, because you're now open all year round? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when you arrive to the camp in in winter, uh, and basically then you come. Yeah, first I have to say it's an activity just to be at the camp, to take all that in, to to. It's like an adventurous overnight, but in comfort. Uh, we try to convince guests to stay two, three nights because after the first night, if you are not uh, a super yeah, a person that's adapted to the bush, you feel still a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, mentally. Yeah. And then like second evening, you just understand everything clicks in and you get super relaxed. 
by the by the third third night you're really comfortable and starting to enjoy it yeah then then you want to then you want to move in yeah then then it's, it might be tough <laughs> leaving it maybe <laughs> yeah yeah no but out there we have we have um, a lot of trails around the camp that we make uh, uh, and you can go off trail with snowshoes uh, uh, and nordic skis uh, and we have kick sleds that is a traditional way of transportation here in the north since hundreds of years yeah. and we have fat bikes that is uh, quite cool actually it's about the same if if the tracks are hard the snow conditions varies from day to day but if the tracks where we have been going with snow wheels are hard a fat bike is roughly the same energy consumption as nordic skiing so quite yeah. quite nice way to get around i have really appreciate that the latest year and then in summer totally different of course, we can get quite hot summers here. We have some kind of Arctic inland climate, so the lake temperature goes up. Sometimes it has touched 27 Celsius wow. in July, August. And then, of course, we use the, the, the sauna that we have that in winter is freezed into the ice. In summer, that one is floating, so that's completely different. And then we have kayaks and canoes and still the fat bikes and a few mountain bikes. And we do a lot of hiking, tracks and signs, wilderness skills learn about all things foraging of course uh, berries what you can get out from trees and plants and we use that when we do cooking and evolve, involve our guests yeah. it's a lot of a lot of things to explore yeah yeah and um, it fits nicely and we're doing some other activities we were talking to sana a few episodes ago now um, and she's fairly close to you so can bring in the dogs for dog sledding yeah and yeah, yeah they're like na- neighbors basically yeah. yeah oh yeah 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 uh, we we when you stay at the camp and then maybe before you arrive after you left or at the actual camp so uh, for example yellow snow can and sun and eric can bring in uh, alaskan huskies and we go dog sledding to yeah. explore the surroundings which is amazing and then we have this uh, well that's the thing now in these times when we have the the corona thing going on uh, we have taken time to develop new things that we have wanted to do for a long time so now we have de- developed a fantastic activity that's uh, hot air ballooning <laughs> sounds a bit crazy but it's just amazing it does sound crazy oh, yeah. way up there in the north i mean i can imagine it over the well having been out in africa and hot air ballooned over the bush yeah we've done a lot of ballooning and my partner is a founder of a uh, he founded together with some other guys in masai mara uh, a fantastic hot air balloon company and now we thought why not clone out a little bit of that into the arctic so we've been test flying now in in the vacuum of guests we have had here you could say and we've been uh, it's been amazing we've been hovering over moose and reindeer and road there and next to birds and uh, in in this uh, in the in, in the latest two weeks of proper winter yeah amazing and gives you a real appreciation i would imagine from the air just not as high as you might see as a, an aircraft flying into one of the airports up there like Luliora or Kiruna, but uh, gives you a much nicer appreciation of the landscapes. And yeah, I can just imagine in winter, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And, and the, the thing is also here, it's so little population here in northernmost Sweden. Yeah. So we have the air for ourselves almost as well which is imagine in, when you go with in down in Europe sometimes or, or it's it's quite crowded in the air in, in, in general not now but but up here it's uh, it's amazing yeah yeah no I'm sure what an incredible activity to include and, and totally unique for that area of the world as well yeah 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 it's 
uh, yeah, we're looking forward for to next winter season. So so knock on wood for things to to get reasonably to get uh, better. Yeah, to get better. And also, of course, that uh, it's uh, possibilities in this that we hope for for the planet that we travel with more mind and that we try to travel to learn. So that's very important things for us that we will embrace. And, and maybe push more from what we want to give to people instead of just adapting to what people want. To be honest, we're going to be yeah. a bit... Uh, when you come here, it's an educational. It has been that before, but we're going to be clearer with that on forward. That's, that's a good initiative to have, I think, to yeah. be able to take things forward in, in that aspect, in light of where we sit right now in, well, still here in lockdown. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. I think what's nice here is that you've um, brought some of the wilderness to the monthly roundups, which have been primarily wildlife oriented around the world. Um, and it's a really different aspect. And I think perhaps next time we can talk more about, you'll be into spring for sure, and we can talk more about um, just the atmosphere of that yeah. out in the forests up there in the north. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to to. to, to dive into here and, and, and learn more about yeah that's great thank you very much frederick i look forward to talking to you next time thank you brilliant talk thanks ballooning over lapland by day and the northern lights by night incredible next up is tyrone who you may remember is speaking to us from zambia from musakese his own camp in kafui national park but before he talks to us we thought we'd mention that we've spawned our first podcast as Tyrone's been busy with his business partner, Phil, and launched The Elephants in the Room, a podcast that is a light-hearted look at safari camp life. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Hi, Tyrone. So what's been happening in the Kafui in Zambia? Yeah, good to see you, Steve, or hear you. Um, yeah, I'm actually in the Kafui now, like, unlike last time when I was in Lusaka. So I'm at our Musakesi camp, and it's absolutely stunning. It's so good to be back in the bush. Um, yeah greenery everywhere water everywhere um and so yeah it's, it's really good of course we're cracking on with with trying to get the camp ready for the unknown start date of the safari season but uh but the wildlife itself is has been fantastic and um, we're lucky to go out last evening and find three leopards together um uh, just an insane little little moment and that it reminds us despite all the hard graft we're putting in building that why we bother doing it yeah, no, that sounds great. It, uh, it's such a beautiful area, and with su you've had quite a lot of rain this year, as you were saying previously. Yeah. Um, so you can really tell the difference. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's drying up very quickly, though. Um, the, the 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 grass is is drying up by the by the day. So the next worry of ours here is is the potential for fires to to come through the landscape. Um, so we we have recently uh, through Mustakesi Conservation, our, our you know our nonprofit to secure a, a tractor to try and, uh, and put in some fire breaks to secure some of the more e ecologically sensitive areas. So um, so that's on site now. And so we'll start with our fire breaks um, any day for now. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Any more exciting any happenings since last time? Yeah. Um, I, was, I was in Lusaka. Phil managed to go out last week um, for a bumble and found our resident lion pride and and, and a fantastic addition of seven little sort of two, three month old cubs hidden in the grass. So, so our pride of, of, of uh, seven, what was seven adult lions has now doubled 
um, to 14. So that was a great another bit of news as well. The elephant herds are moving back into the area, showing us that the, the, the water in, in the bush is drying up, forcing them towards the river now. So it's there's loads going. It really, I mean, you know, I'm biased, but it, it really is. It's, 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 it's a magical time. And this greenery at the moment, when you take a photo this time of year, Steve, it's so different to the to the dry months when most people come on safari and it's, you know, a relatively dusty scene. But here it's just lush. It's great. It really is. A bit tougher to spot stuff. But when you do, you're rewarded. Really, really <laughs> nice. So that was a really good sighting of seven li uh, lion cubs. Yeah, it was magic. Um, that's quite an unusual number as well, isn't it? Yeah, so it must have been a couple. Well, we we assume we've only seen them once. That it's two. We had two of our adult females were were seemed to be pregnant at the same time. So that would make a bit more sense for them to have dropped together, as they tend to do with a stable sort of you know male yeah um, coalition looking after them for the last couple of years. So yeah, no, it's really positive. And so uh, yeah, we look forward to to the season ahead and and learning more about their characters. Yeah, no, that's great. And Eden Lagoon is really is Eden Lagoon at the moment, I would imagine. Much bird life in. Oh, Steve, you're right, actually. That, yeah, oh, from 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 the lagoon that you usually see that it's, it's dry, we're boating from the main area deck still, um, which is unprecedented. I think the, the wow. I think we managed to still boat around in April a couple of years ago, but this is now into May now, aren't we? And, and we're we're boating all the way around and there's gallinules and oh, it's, it's all kinds of stuff turns it's, it's fantastic it really is so uh yeah beautiful time of year but uh, it, it will dry it'll dry quick we should point out that eden lagoon is the name you've given to the dambo that's out in front of the of musukese camp that's right yeah yeah it's and we, <laughs> the name eden might sound a bit grandiose but it was actually the staff when we first took them to this area because we had a camp in a different location before we found this area and they came um, and we, we showed them the wildlife here in the dry season in this lagoon. It's a six, it's a six kilometer long, uh, basically a, an old oxbow um, of the main Kafui River. And when we brought the staff here, they couldn't believe the wildlife densities in this lagoon. And, this, and one of the young, um, I think it was Pride, um, the scullery said, ah, this must be Eden. And so that kind of stuck. <laughs> so yeah, it's the Eden Lagoon. But uh, yeah, for those who've seen it and you have, Steve, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great little area, great little area. Absolutely, it's uh, stunning out there. Being able to sit on the deck and look out over the wildlife that's coming in and going. And as I remember, uh, two lions and a hippo out there having fun. <laughs> well, a dead hippo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't so much fun for the hippo, was it? But uh, no, that was great. But yeah, there's plenty of hippos out there now, Steve. But they're all busy eating the lilies. <laughs> Well, I think I think we can probably round up yeah. uh, this month from the Kafui. Thanks very much, Tyrone. My pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for your time and keep well. And you. So from lions to some unusual visitors with Jahan in India, he's got a lovely tented camp, Shurgar, at Karna National Park. And during recording, we had a few issues with power cuts. So we pick up his story again, but you've not missed anything. Hi, Steve. Nice to see you again. Sorry, we just had a power cut in India, so... So I was saying that we have uh, thousands of people back in their villages uh, with no work, nothing to do. And they're, of course, turning to the forest for their resources. So you've got far more people than the forest can accommodate, collecting wood, timber for their houses, firewood, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and therefore, we are going to see an immense pressure on these yep. fragile ecosystems. The other worry is that people are also going to be entering forests for bush meat. 
And uh, if they do lay a trap, any sort of a trap, the trap doesn't discriminate. And, you know, if a trap is laid, say, for a partridge or a quail or some sort of uh, uh, pheasant, uh, a small cat, a small mammal may get caught in it. So it's a tricky situation. Is there any evidence of that already? Yes, of course there is evidence. It, it happens even in normal circumstances, but the problem has been exacerbated by larger populations uh, all having nothing to do yeah. in hundreds of villages which abut our national parks. And are there anti-poaching patrols? Yeah, so, so the forest departments have uh, they've recognized these problems. They've increased patrolling strengths. Uh, it's also the fire season, so it's also a time where they naturally need to look out for forest fires. So they've increased strengths, but it's been a bit of a tricky time because during the lockdown, they've had to provide all the backup assistance to these foot soldiers, to these people in the field. For example, these people live out in remote forest outposts in the middle of the jungle. So they've had to provide all their ration, their daily needs, their food supplies, uh, extra staff. And the forest department have had to sort of come in and do things which they're not usually asked to do. So, for example, uh, the food which is stored in these remote outposts is brought in every week by the people who live there. They go out to the markets and they bring in a week's worth of food or two weeks' worth of food. Yeah. Now, with the country in lockdown, markets uh, running on very limited time schedules, and of course, the fear that if somebody goes to a market, they may not come back. You know, the, poli the police are questioning people, asking people. So what the forest department has very cleverly done is that they've made sure that all the people who are meant to be patrolling in remote outposts are not moving from those positions. And whatever they need is being provided to them in their locations of where they live. Yeah. So that's been a, a new sort of uh, logistical challenge because there are hundreds of these outposts within the parks. So that's been a new logistical challenge that the administration of the national parks has have to have had to take on, uh, and they've done it fairly efficiently this last month or the last two months. Yeah. yeah. And you were talking about some. Sorry, you were talking about some elephants as well. Yes. 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 And there's a there's an interesting piece of news. Uh, so. Yes, so Kanha Tiger Reserve in the state of Madhya Pradesh has had no records of wild elephants in the area uh, as far as we know. Uh, but last month, two tuskers uh, have moved into the protect protected area. Uh, they've moved in from the eastern state of Jharkhand and Orissa. I mean, we've, we've all got to realize that elephants migrate long ways. Uh, but habits are changing because uh, they're coming up against human civilization, against roads, railway tracks, industries and mines. So their traditional uh, historic migratory routes are all being disturbed. Yeah. But so we have these two fairly young Tuskers. Both of them are sort of juvenile, of a juvenile age. And they've taken up uh, residence in the central zone of Kanha Meadows. They've been there for maybe 10 days or two weeks. And uh, we're all very excited because we feel like if it, if it feels like a safe area for the elephants to inhabit, to repopulate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we may see something interesting. But of course, we know very little about it. We know very little about whether 
there is the variety of food that elephants need uh, through the year. We know that there's enough water. Uh, we also know that eventually these two young tuskers will go looking for females, will go looking for a herd. Um, so we are waiting and watching. But of course, it's exciting because we also feel like if the areas around protected areas don't feel safe for elephants, they may start inhabiting natural uh, wildlife sanctuaries. And in the last two years, we've seen a herd of about 35 elephants inhabit Bandavgarh National Park. And we don't have any records of elephants historically being in Bandavgarh either. So it's a very interesting time. So we are waiting and watching. So these elephants are being monitored. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's great news. Yeah. And these elephants are being monitored. So we'll see. I mean, uh, we'll see if they move out or they decide to stay on. Uh, eventually, they will, they will go looking for herds. So, uh, I mean, yeah. It's a question of when. Do you receive regular updates throughout the summer months as well then, throughout the monsoon? Parks are going to remain shut, I think, until the start of the monsoon. And when the monsoon starts, which is in June, uh, the parks are shut by default just because of the nature of, you know, torrents of water coming down. So I don't think we are going to see the parks reopening until October. Uh, but having said that, we uh, receive regular updates on what goes on. So... Look forward to coming back on. Yeah, thanks very much, Jahan. Bye for now. Take care. Stay safe. Bye. Hopefully we'll pick up on the elephants in Kana next time before the National Park closes for the monsoon. On the other side of the world is Tim McGrady from Farewell Harbour Lodge, who was with us on the last episode talking about bears and whales in Canada. He's back with us with another recent story. Tim, can you tell me what's been happening recently, or at least in the last month or so? Um, you've been out with the bears, I understand. I have, I have, yeah. And um, initially, if you'd talked to me yesterday, uh, if we chatted yesterday, Steve, it, it, it would have it would have had a slightly different ending than it has today. So it's it's not got the same positive ending uh, as as I hoped it it would uh, if we had talked yesterday. It's got a bit, bit of a sad ending, but the story in itself is still very positive. And so I, I still want to want to share it because it, it's got some it's got some positive messages in it. But um, about uh, two weeks ago, uh, maybe 10 days ago, I got a phone call from uh, the uh, a research crew um, that were at a at a camp and uh, uh, they were seeing a bear uh, be be quite um, precocious, a little bit more aggressive uh, than than you know is normal around around humans. And they had taken some video and some photographs, which gave me a little bit of concern. Yeah, it's not normal to see bears uh, right right around uh, the, the the mouth of the fjords. Typically, we see them uh, up in the in the estuaries, further up the fjords. And so I contacted the guardians. Uh, the Mamalilika guardians, these are First Nations guardians in whose traditional territory we operate. Um, and the guardians contacted the chief of the, of the Mamalilika First Nation. And we uh, went out to investigate. And indeed, this bear was doing things that weren't normal um, in terms of, of, of behavior and, and activity, um, just uh, hanging around. And this is in a remote area. It is a very remote area. Yeah, it was hanging around this this camp, um, and when we went to investigate, it appeared that this bear had gotten into some garbage that had been left, 
um, which is of course the the absolute no no. Um, and so yeah. this this camp had left some untended garbage, was disparaged, uh, had become um, conditioned to this garbage in a dangerous way. And so at that point, we had to call in the Conservation Officer Service, which is tasked in British Columbia with um, monitoring wildlife and, and particularly when they become uh, conditioned like this. And so we went in with the Conservation Officer Service and they quickly determined that because of the, 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 the way this bear had been conditioned to garbage, they had to, to euthanize it. And the nation, the, the chief, the First Nations were very adamant that they didn't want to see this bear killed, that they wanted to relocate it. Relocation is very expensive. It involves helicopters and tranquilizing. It's very, very complicated, very expensive process. And they put their foot down and they said, absolutely not. We are not going to euthanize this bear. We must relocate it. Yeah. And so um, they put a lot of pressure and this was this all happened in the space of about uh, 12 hours. Yeah. They escalated it to the ministerial level and the government. We got the minister of the environment involved, um, and they they kind of cascaded that down to the conservation officer service um, and convinced the officers, the CO service, to work with us to tranquilize the spare and move it. So we switched, you know, the conservation officers switched from the, this euthanized mode to to a tranquilized mode, um, and it took us about. Uh, about six hours, and the, the conservation officers set what's called the wrist snare, um, and so it snared, it, it snagged the bear. It took about eight different attempts. The bear was very smart. It it uh, it, it got around the, the different techniques that they've been using, but eventually it snagged its paw. Um, he didn't like that, and <laughs> so for the first 20 minutes he was quite angry and threw up a lot of dirt and fuss, and, but eventually he settled down, and they yeah. had to do that because they need the bear to be uh, immobile to tranquilize it because it takes about 10 minutes for the trank to take into effect. Yeah. To tranquilize, yeah. So eventually they, they, worked, they tranked the bear. Um, we called in the helicopter. We picked up, it took seven grown adults to lift this bear into the net. If you can imagine how heavy. Seven of us. I was lifting one corner of the of the bag, and it was. I used every ounce of strength I had. Yeah. Seven of us struggling. We lifted it into the net. Uh, we bundled the net on a long line on the helicopter, and transported it into a remote river. Uh, we went up to the river by boat. It took us about two hours by boat. We watched the bear wake up. Um, it was quite amazing, quite moving actually to see this bear wake up, and um, and then he trotted off into the forest. Yeah. And we thought this was wonderful. You know, we've we've done something extraordinary. And um, in a number of different respects, we bridged this gap between the conservation officer service, whose funding doesn't really permit them to do out of the box thinking like this. Out of the box, uh, you know, they 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 just don't have the resources. Yeah. So with the resources that we brought with the First Nations and with the government and the SEAL service, we were able to do this extraordinary thing to move the bear. So it really helped bridge this chasm between COs and between conservation, you know, in terms of, of, of not having to kill these bears. So um, about, um, about five days later, this bear had found his way back into uh, an area where there's a fish farm. And they have what's called a mort float where they put dead fish from the fish farm. And normally they're obligated to electrify the, the mort float. They hadn't yep. done that. So he got back into human food. The salmon, dead salmon, uh, and that triggered that response uh, uh -huh. and had him go looking further for other human food. Uh, so he traveled further back down the inlet, 
back towards uh, uh, an area where there are some remote cabins uh, and a, uh, a, a resident uh, at one of these remote cabins uh, ended up shooting the bear. Uh, we found out that uh, 48 hours ago. Uh, and um, so it was a tragic end to the story. Um, but we've been in touch with the Minister of the Environment and the Conservation Officer Service, and we have a firm commitment to work together with them to really elaborate the strategy and, and, and really think through how we're going to respond similar in ways that doesn't, that doesn't lead to the same kind of, uh, of end. And uh, so we're, 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 while we're incredibly sad with the outcome of this particular story, we're, we're really emboldened by what it, what it means for the future in terms of collaboration, in terms of, uh, in terms of saving these bears you know, um, for, for into the future. Whilst it's not been a good outcome for this particular individual, he's been, you've learned so much from it that uh, things will go much more smoothly next time. And presumably translocation or movement away from the area, movement away from the area would be uh, so much further inland probably. Yeah, perhaps. Or the other thing we're looking at is there's different techniques. There's something called a hard release where you, where you, uh, where, when you release them, um, like this is a soft release where the bear wakes up and then work and then leaves. Yeah. A hard release is where the bear wakes up and then you use aversion therapy, which are rubber bullets or bean bags, uh, to really, um, you know, teach them humans are, you don't want to re around humans cause they will hurt you. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so that's a strategy that professional bear biologists will often use when they're doing a tranquilization is, a, is a, what they call a hard release. The other thing we're looking at is potentially involving some researchers to collar the bears so we can track their, their movements through, through GPS. Yeah. So that's really exciting because that leads into a whole other research angle that we're super excited about. Yeah, no, for sure. That's good. Well, yeah. sad yeah. news for the bear, but good news for the future, hopefully. Yeah, and you know, i got to say, Steve, I've been working with bears for 20 years, and uh, I've never touched a bear. And so it was really special to go as we moved the bear into this net to just feel his fur and feel his claws and his foot pads and his fur was much more dense than I'd ever imagined. I mean, it probably was about three or four inches thick of fur. Wow. And um, just to feel his fur and how, how rough it was on the exterior, but how soft it was underneath that, that exterior coat. Um, and to look at his teeth and touch his canines, it was, it was really, really amazing to, to, to have that experience. And you were saying beforehand, he was, he was quite a big bear as well. Oh, it's incredible. I, you know, people often ask me, well, how much does that bear weigh? We're sitting there watching a bear and I'll, you know, I'll estimate it giving on what, what I, what I've experienced and what I know. But, um, when I, if somebody had asked me what this bear had weighed, I would have said, you oh, know, maybe 300, 350 pounds. But, um, but when we actually lifted it, seven guys, seven strong guys, <laughs> it was much more than that, much more than that. So, yeah, that was interesting. Stories like Tim's are tough to take when you love wildlife, as we all do, but at least there is hope for the future of any other itinerant bears. Finally, we join Guiliano back in the Pantanal wetlands of Brazil. Hi there, Steve. Uh, good to talk to you again. Um, Water level is coming down in the Pantanal. I think we have already made the, the move to the dry season. We can see the weather is different, it, the air is drier, and even the behavior of the animals has already changed. So we see uh, reptiles are moving a lot more, and we see, already have seen the con big concentrations of water birds. 
such as egrets and, and herons and storks. Uh, the other day I saw uh, more than 20 Jebru storks in the same area. It, it was just beautiful. Uh, oh, and we already got the, the Maguari storks. You know, Maguari storks, um, they, they look very much the, the typical stork you guys have in, 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 the Europe, in Europe. The white storks. But Maguari storks are, are strict to South America, and they're kind of rare in the Pantanal. You don't see them all the time. You don't see them every trip. But we have good numbers of them already here. That's good. You, um, you mentioned about the reptiles as well. And so just beforehand, we were talking about uh, caiman moving around and anacondas. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, we saw an anaconda crossing the road the other day. It was cool. Uh, me and the boys, we, we got out of the car to push it away from the, from the main road. We were afraid that, you know, a, a speeding truck could cause harm to the snake. Um, and we have seen a, f a lot more caimans in our little river by the lodge. Um, so they are there at the banks, you know, close to the lodge every day now. And the other night we were going from, from our restaurant to, to our room and we found a family, actually um, a mother caiman with 20 little babies. They were just the cutest things, you know, they're like, uh, six, seven inches long, and they were beautiful. They, they were moving to the, to the river, you know, they were coming from a pond, the pond where they are staying, where she had the babies. Yeah. Actually, you know, it's getting drier and drier. So she took the babies to the river. Uh, it was beautiful to see them. And we had to watch them because they were walking by the swimming pool and we didn't want any of those little <laughs> caimans to come and, and fall in the swimming pool, it would be a hard work, especially with Mama Cayman, you know, being angry with us. <laughs> but everything went right for them. That's good. So they all walk behind it, though. She doesn't carry them at all. No, no, she doesn't. She calls them, you know, she, she makes a sound to call, to call the little ones. And, and the little ones communicate with mother, too. Yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. Okay, and what's the sound? Um, something more like this, uh, like... Mm. Can you hear that? It's like, it's hard to, it's a very nasal sound. Uh, it's a strange thing, but, but they like, woo, woo, something like that. And, and, and they, anyhow, she keeps them around her. And of course, she goes in a very slow pace, you know. So it took her like 45 minutes to cover um, 50 yards or something like that. But they eventually got to the water. <laughs> Is it right that they have a nursery as well once they're in a, a mainstream like that? Well, I, I, I don't know if, you, if we can call that a nursery, but the babies will, will hang out in, in a certain area and the mother will be watching them, you know. You don't want to approach that spot when there's a mother with babies. She will be hunting for fish and other stuff um, around there. Um, but, and, but it's not quite a nursery you know they, they make nests you know caimans make yeah make nests and we actually had another nest uh, right at the beginning of one of our trails uh, last month i forgot to tell you last time we talked about this um we couldn't walk that trail for a couple of weeks because that caiman was guarding the nest so fiercely you know she wouldn't let anyone approach 
<laughs> the the trail had. So we had to wait until they hatched and then they moved to the pond and then it was okay to walk the trail again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you seen many mammals, any changes in the mammals this month that you've spotted? Um, not many changes, you know, the regular mammals. Um, one of our guides, Johnny, he was driving to the lodge the other day and he saw again the, the jaguar. Jaguar was laying on the road, sitting there. Um, so she keeps, she keeps around, uh, which is a good thing, I think. <laughs> as far as, as the jaguar doesn't eat my deer, you know, we have this beautiful marsh <laughs> deer living in the same spot where they saw the big cat. That's probably why she's there. <laughs> And you've not got any more um, photos or videos from the camera traps of the giant armadillo? No, not recently. But I'll, I'll, I'll check the cameras again uh, next week. I'll let you know if we find anything. Yeah, because that was quite exciting news last week, last month. Oh, did I tell you that we are going to do the, the global big day uh, next weekend? Yeah, you mentioned that, that you'll be out birding all day, I think. Yeah, we're, we're kind of excited to do that. So um, I'm planning something with, with a friend of mine. Uh, three years ago, uh, we did the big day. You know, it's the Cornell Lab and, and the eBird program. They organize this global big day of bird watching. So birders from all around the world try to see as many species as possible if they can. Yeah. In, in one day, you know, starting from midnight to midnight anyhow we're going to do something uh, see what we get it's going should be fun it's always fun well let us know how it goes next time yeah yeah i'll tell you next time we talk well i hope you enjoyed our tour around some of the world's special wilderness places and we'll bring you further updates from around the world next month if you've enjoyed our podcast so far do subscribe and share with friends interested in wildlife and wilderness thanks for listening and bye for now Wildlife and Wilderness is at all protected.